last two chapters, Paul really, really got deep with the people and basically took them out to the theological woodshed and <laughs> yeah, gave them, a, gave them a little beating. Um, he's going to soften up a little bit towards the end of the book, and uh, so it's going to get a little easier, but the book of Galatians, from beginning to end, is probably the maddest, most upset or angry that you'll ever see Paul, and it was clearly a very frustrating book because some of the things he says in it makes that very obvious. And uh, here, as we finish this up, he's going to use a, an allegory because clearly people are getting sidetracked or brought off or you know taken away, taken back into Torah observance, which is the law observance. And so he really wants to stop the people from doing this. So he's doing every, he's, he's implying everything he could possibly, everything from rhetorical questions to Again, getting mad at him and just saying it straightforward to citing scripture to him to now he's going to start using an allegory. Now an allegory, just so we all remember the exact, exactly what it is, an allegory is a figurative treatment of one subject that we attempt to make it seem like another subject. So we try to explain one subject using another subject. It's not comparing the two. It's not saying they are exactly alike. So an allegory, just for the sake of, of doing this, is I asked my mom to give me an allegory because I didn't have any good ones. And <laughs> she told me this story about um, somebody had given her an allegory years ago that was said, kind of like, women are like apples on a tree. The higher up the apple is on the tree, the better it usually is. Cause, and that's actually... True, in the sense that it tends to be farther away from insects. It tends to get, you know, the dirtier particles and stuff tend to get cleaned up by the time it gets up there. So it's not getting picked off by deer and various things like that. So the best apples are towards the top of the tree. Therefore, a, women tend to be kind of like an apple tree. Because to get to the really good ones, you got to climb. It takes time. It's difficult. You have to go out on a limb. You have to really, really stretch yourself out, and sometimes it can be, feel like it's treacherous to get there. So, guys tend to go after the low-hanging fruit, the ones that are easy to get. And therefore, the guys get frustrated at women for, because all they're dealing with are the rotten apples, and the good apples feel like they're undeserving or there's something wrong with them because they're not getting all the people pursuing them that the rotten apples are. That's an allegory. I'm not saying women are apples. I'm not saying they have the skin of apples. I'm not saying that if you bite them, they are crispy and juicy inside. I'm not making any of those. I'm just using a terminology of something you can uh, see in your mind or another thing that maybe could, would be really aware or apparent to make something that's a little difficult plain. So that's the point of an allegory. You're not even comparing. You're not even saying... This thing is like that thing, because women aren't like apples, really, in any physical, or it's just trying to make the logic fit. And I say that because this here, this portion here, a lot of division in the church amongst this. I mean, there's entire denominations that have split over some of what's about to be said. So... Notice that Paul's even going to say, he tells them, I'm speaking in an allegory. But people don't know, a lot of people don't always get the allegory. They think, oh, he's meaning this is real, this is legitimate. It's not, he's not saying the things two are exactly the same, he's just trying to make you explain it. Trying to make you understand it the best he can. So, starting in the 21st verse, it says, um, oh, I'll start with 20, just because it's at, that's the beginning of that sentence. It says, uh, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. 
which things are an allegory. I mean, he's, he's telling you, I'm about to tell you an allegory. For these are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai, which gendered the bondage to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren, that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath more children than she hath, which hath a husband. Now, already you can see there's a, if, if, you know, anybody, you know, we're all been Christians a while here. You already see there's a weird thing there. Because in reality, Hagar had Ishmael. Ishmael is where the Ishmael lights, where the, where the current day um, Arabic people come from. So, but he's making the, uh, the analogy that because she was bound, she wasn't free to go, the law is like her as the mother, and the child is like those who are currently living in Jerusalem. That's what he said, those who are in Jerusalem who are under bondage to the law. So, I'm, although in reality, in real life, that, of course, Sarah, you know, Abraham, Sarah had Isaac, Isaac is the father of the nation of Israel, the physical line. He's just using this analogy to say that, you know, that, that one is, was born through bondage, through flesh, because God told them to wait, and they didn't, and they ended up having a child that, from the bondwoman. So, again, that's so Agar in this, in this instance is being described as the law. Therefore, the Jewish people are being considered children of the bondwoman, because they're bound by the law. However, you know, it says, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So he's saying Jerusalem, which is in heaven, because you think about in Revelation, and we're going to go there in a second, Revelation 21, it talks about he saw Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. There's a Jerusalem prepared already, adorned in heaven, that comes down to us, down to earth. So the Jerusalem that's in, a hev in heaven, in the heavenly places, that's the mother of us currently, meaning the church, as Christians. Therefore, we're not bound by the law. We're not children of the bondwoman, as Israel is currently. We are children of freedom. So, you know, again, that's the only reason why I'm pushing this is because this is one that people will bring this up like crazy, to try and make all kinds of things. First of all, that they'll use this to try to make the point that what well, Paul's claiming that Abraham and Sarah and the, you know, were just allegories, and you can just use them, not that they're real people. And there's, I mean, you go to a Bible college, you'll hear stuff like that. Um, you go to certain different denominations, you'll hear things about, this, trying to like turn this as though this has to do anything with genealogy. It doesn't. It's all about spiritual things. Nothing to do with genealogy. It's all spiritual things. So, what we're going to do is, again, just because I, I said it, I'll do it. Revelation 21. Revelation 21. In verse 10. Well, we'll start in eight, 9. Why not? Verse 9. And it says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit uh, to a great and high mountain, and showed me the, that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of the heaven from God having the glory of God, and her light was like unto the stone, more precious, even like of jasper stone, clear as crystal. So, and then it goes on to explain what it looked like. 
two of them. But so we see there is a, there's, this is a, there's a heaven, heaven is described as a Jerusalem, there's a Jerusalem, I mean, it says that, if you read earlier in the bet, that there's a temple in the heavens, that there's an altar in the heavens, I mean, you see his, the smoke billowing out as they cast, as they cast incenses and they praise God on, in the heavens, so there is an image and how this works, there is a, the things that were, are on earth are a mirror image of things that are in heaven in some way or another. Whether, I mean, whether they're exact, but that's the reason why God wanted people to do certain things on here is to follow his commands and his orders so that we would, we would, we would be like what he wants. We are supposed to be ambassadors of God on earth. We're supposed to act and subdue the earth and, and, and be as though God himself were doing it himself. That's following God. That's why you love the God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Supposed to be doing what God wants on this earth. So there is, like I said, so Jerusalem, that's the reason why Paul's making this analogy about Jerusalem, which is above. So he's talking about we're born of you know, freedom. We're born of above. We're, we're born of the freedom of heaven, essentially. So that, that will in the end times, come down and ascend as the bride of the Lamb. So, therefore, that's why that makes that analogy. We also have, he uses, and he actually uses a, a portion of Isaiah when he's doing this quote about, you know, blessed is the barren and woman, you know, you have not barren, you have not break for all that stuff. Where she's saying, anyway, he's doing that with that little, you know, before it's written, that's in Isaiah, and again, he's using that as an allegory. He's using the terminology to say that, you know, the woman who has given birth to all these children and all these things, she has tons of children, but she's under bondage. She has all these people who want to follow this, but she's under bondage. The, person, the, 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 the one who was barren, Sarah had Isaac. She has fewer children. Because fewer people will truly believe the gospel. Fewer people will, will truly believe God, will believe, Satan, will believe that, that Jesus was born, died, resurrected. Fewer people will be born of the child of the promise than will be born of bondage. So the bondage is the majority of people. The vast majority of people born will not believe. That's unfortunate, but that is the truth. And therefore, that's... Again, that's why that poem is used there. That blessed is she who is barren, and she'll cry because she doesn't have to see her children going to hell. No, she's there because they're children of the promise. They're going to heaven. So, again, and so this whole thing is an is it's allegory. Again, so that we when you read that, it's tough. It's difficult. If anybody ever takes you here and starts trying to point out things, making comments about the law is needed, or that. Somehow, I've made, I've seen things where people say there is a switch. Like, that's actually what Muslims will try and push and say. Well, right here, you're obviously, there was somewhere in the Old Testament they changed it because evidently Ishmael was the one that was born that he took to Mount Moriah and was supposed. Said I, they try and switch it on you, and don't. <laughs> this is an allegory. It's not. It's not how it happened. So again, this is the. This is. This is why Galatians, this little middle chunk here, is really difficult. Because Paul's saying a lot of really difficult things here. So we're going to continue reading in uh, 28. And we're going to see where he goes, with it, where, where Paul takes us. He says, Now we, brethren, so yeah, Galatians 4.28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then... He that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit. Even so, it is now. Nevertheless, what says the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir of the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So, Again, he's just, he's making it, he's bringing it about again, making sure that you understand it, because these people are persecuted, remember. So he's saying, just like, now, and again, he's using the analogy, just like Esau 
and or just like uh just like you know Isaac was had difficulty in his lifetime he had his brother whether it was from you know um Ishmael whether it was from his father you have people in the world that persecute and therefore those who want to be under the law are persecuting those who are free is the analogy again he's making here with this by saying because he says you know, starting in 20, it says, Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. Meaning, you know, Isaac was the child of the promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit. Even so it is now. So we see again, so we see, you know, he's making that, that listen, the reason why you're under persecution is because you're doing the right thing. It's usually, and that's, <laughs> that's one of the things I tell people all the time, because I had somebody say, once that um, we are talking about some political stuff. And he said, well, the majority said this. I said, no, the majority's wrong. And he goes, well, the majority's wrong? I said, most of the time, yeah. <laughs> most of the time, yeah. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, the vast majority of people, you know, in almost any debate that we've ever had about any subject, moral or whatever, vast majority of people are going to go with what seems right according to the flesh. They're not going to be consulting the Bible. They're not going to be consulting, you know, scripture or spiritual things or praying about it. They're going to be doing what seems right in their flesh. And unfortunately, the flesh, man's heart is, above all things, exceedingly evil. So it is not to be trusted. So, again, we're going to, with this, how it says, so brethren... We are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We're going to jump to Romans 9 to look at what we're dealing with here. So go back in your Bible a little bit. Pages to Romans 9. And we're going to do, the, we're going to do a little bit. This is a big chunk, but it's all one thought, basically. Um, this is a really, another part of Scripture that gets massacred by different denominations and different people from places. But Romans 9, verse 1 says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and, and whom are as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God, God blessed forever. Amen. So now he's just making the thing. He's saying, Paul's saying, listen, I, I, you know, he has grief in his heart and he would, he wishes he could be cursed from Christ if every single Jew that doesn't believe would just believe. Would just believe. See the truth and believe. Is what he's saying there. He's saying, I wish I would be a curse of my kinsmen of the flesh. Meaning, because Paul was a Jew from Benjamin. He's saying that of all those who are Israel, of, of actual Jewish people, Hebrews lineage, would just believe. In 6, it says, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Again, a very tough situation because this, this is used by all kinds of people. It's used by 
Calvinist to say, you know, even before the children were born, God already hated Esau because he knew he'd be doing evil and stuff. It's not so, this is a term, this is, that the reason that God was angry was not necessarily, he didn't hate Esau the person, he hated Esau the deeds. Because God does know all. And he knew what Esau would eventually do. So therefore, because he, do, he did know, he was angry about the deeds that Esau would do. So he did not hate the child in the womb for something that it hadn't done yet. He hated the fact that it would eventually grow and do these things. So again, that's just a, clearing up a little Calvinist mistake there. <laughs> but if you notice, he's talking about how, the, in that first part of that, he's saying how that, you know, we're not, not everybody who's of the flesh, who says they're of Israel, who is born of, you know, Abraham's seed, is of the true spiritual Israel. They're not, because they have to be born of the promise. What was the promise? The promise was that Sarah would have a child, Isaac, and through Isaac, the, the new Adam, Christ, would come. That's what he, in the third verse, in the third chapter of Galatians, Paul makes that really, he goes over it several times very clearly, that, you know, you, you need to be aware that the promise was not just a child and Isaac, it was the Christ. It was Jesus Christ was, was the promise, that it would come. And therefore, everybody who was born of Christ are Abraham's children, not people who are born of the flesh. And remember, this is the reason why this is such an important thing is because people are trying to say you have to be Jewish before you can be Christian in this time. And again, they're saying like, oh, if you want to be saved, you have to get circumcised. You have to get all these different things. And he's trying to point, listen, of the, that's why he keeps using of the flesh, of the flesh. Because he's saying, okay, well, you're going to get circumcised. It's something you do in your flesh. Well, you're not in the heart. That's not your heart. So... It doesn't mean anything. So brothers in the flesh doesn't mean anything. Children in the flesh doesn't mean anything. Circumcised in the flesh doesn't mean anything. Heart. That's where it comes from. It has to do with the heart. So it he's just it's the stress. And that's one of the Paul things Paul does continually over all of his ministry is he just keeps talking about it. Which is incredible that that's all he talks about for the most part. And yet we still have today people arguing the point that about being under the law or following observances. Paul himself did follow the law, observances. He did. I mean, he acts, he talks about it, going back to Jerusalem for Pentecost, going back to Jerusalem, long after he was saved and he was already preaching. So he was still observing certain things that he had done from his youth, but he observed them for the right reason, not because he thought that was something he had to do for salvation. He was doing it as a glory of God that he was already saved, of the finished work of Christ. So, if we start in 14, we're just going to do this next little chunk because this is important about this because, again, it has to do with the fact that God is righteous at all times. 14 says, um, so Romans 9, 14 says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. He's referring to that line about God hating Esau. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says unto, said unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardens. Again, that's, and so the reason why Pharaoh is on there is because if you read back in there, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And because Pharaoh hardened his heart, God took it upon himself to do the plagues and stuff, which made Pharaoh harden himself even more. So God's saying, if you're willing to go against me, then I'll just use you as an example. So when Pharaoh was not willing to do what God said, he said, fine, I'm going I'm to make sure all of my wrath comes out towards you. I'm going to use it. God has no problem with revealing his righteous 
justice on people who deserve it. And he also has mercy upon people who very much deserve justice and, and damnation. But in this, in this case, he's shown how that God will allow people to be raised up so that they can be vessels of. He already knows before you're born that yep, they're going to do the wrong thing, they're going to do all this bad stuff. So God's actually going to use that to make a point. He's going to use that to make a point of his power, of his, of, of his knowledge, and of the fact that he's righteous. And he will show mercy on who he chooses. We, can't, we assign all kinds of stuff to God all the time. People assign motives to God. People assign, well, again, people come up with systematic theology and stuff like that. They'll say, oh, well, God has to do this and God has to do that. I don't know. I'm not the type of person that would say God has to do anything. <laughs> I don't think that's a fair, I don't think that's a, I would stay away from telling God what he has to do. But uh, God, God does what he wants to do. And everything he does is perfect and right. Because it is not of us who say, well, it's, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That's not the reason why we're saved. It's not the reason why he cast judgment on us person who runs and does, you know, and, and finishes the race. It's not why they win. They didn't win because they were better than the people or better human being than the people that lost the race. It happened. And God will take every event and use it for the betterment of his glory. God does not cause bad things to happen. He knows that people are going to do not do what he wants them to do and thus cause bad things. And he allows it to happen. See, that's the difference. Is like The Calvinist wants it to be that God is Sovereign, and he is, but that he's like forcing these things. Literally, they will say he causes everything to happen. Every bad thing that's ever happened was caused by God for some purpose. I mean, everything. Rape of children caused by God for his purpose, for some reason. It's, we can't question him because he's sovereign. Again, <laughs> it's not that God causes it. It's that God allows us to do it. He knows we're going to do it. He allows it. Why? Usually he's doing it because he wants to show his justice. The people that are really bad, oftentimes, they get used the best for, they're the best examples of divine justice. The really bad people. So when somebody's going to be bad, God, just watch out. God might let you do what you really want to raise you up so that he can knock you down. <laughs> so again, that's what this is going here. This is not talking about God hating, necessarily hating people. He hates actions that people do. And it's not talking about God making events happen. It's talking about the fact that God is sovereign over him and he uses all things for good. He doesn't cause the problems. And, and got people say, oh, everything happens for a reason. I don't necessarily believe everything happens for a reason, but all things work together for God's ultimate good. So again, we're, we're, and so therefore, Paul is using this as the point of saying that He's not, just because he elected Israel to be an elect group of people, that doesn't mean that all of them are saved just because of that. Some of them are going to go, some people who are Jewish or Hebrew, there are all times. Elect people. That's what you call them. You're my elect. I've called you out. They died and went to hell. Go read about Eli's children. They died and went to hell. They were Jewish. They followed all the customs, but did them wrong and very badly. But they had evil hearts. They never believed in God. So, they go, they're in hell. That's all there is to it. So just because somebody is called elect, again, that's, a, that, that's that Calvinist thing. Just because somebody's called elect doesn't mean they're necessarily elected to heaven. They might be elected to show God's wrath. And so, therefore, we went back to Romans to look at, Paul does this a lot, where he uses terminology that he's not saying specifically that, you know, to be of Israel, of, of Abraham's seed, you have to be physical. And he's not even saying you have to be a, act Jewish. He's saying you have to act spiritual. You have to act in the, in, in the spiritual. Your heart has to be changed. You have to do those things. So he's using another type, form of an allegory there. That, that not everybody who's fleshly of Abraham is considered Abraham's seed in heaven. So when we see here where he's using Hagar and Sarah, 
as the two covenants, we can see that he's using another allegory to just further his point that the law is bondage. The blood is freedom. And if you want to be under the law, you cannot be of the blood. You can only be one. You can only be the flesh, Sarah, or Hagar. You can be of the blood of Sarah. You can't be both. You have to believe in one. You can't pick both. It's just how it is. You can still, for your own heart's sake, for your own conscience' sake, you can still follow the traditions with the right mindset that Christ filled all this. Christ did this. But you can't be using it as any part of like that this is somehow saving you or atoning for you. It's not. And you can't choose both. That's the point Paul is making. You cannot choose both. We're going to start in chapter 5, and we're going to run rough shot over the next six verses real quick. <laughs> because Paul is going to do this again. where He's going to, he's going to make it very clear what he's saying here. With, with 5, verse 1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty... With where, wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is, come, is become of no effect unto you, Whosoever you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. So, again, he made it incredibly clear that if you're going to put yourself under the law, then you've got to follow it all. You've got to follow it all perfectly. That's the way it is. No grace for you if you're going to put yourself under the law. No grace. And the reason why he's doing the circumcision is specifically because that's what the Galatians were fighting. They were saying you had to be, literally had to be circumcised or you could not be a Christian. And he's saying no, no, no nothing physical has anything to do with the kingdom. So, And like I said, he makes that incredibly clear there. Where he just says don't be entangled by the yoke, the bondage. Continuing in 7. He says... Ye did run well, who did hinder you, and that ye should not obey the truth. This persuasion comes not of him that calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but, that, but he that troubles you shall bear his judgment whosoever he shall be. So again, what Paul's doing here is he's saying, listen, this is one or maybe a group, of people, but there is a person preaching in amongst them that, that he's preaching evil. He is preaching sin. He's pre that's and that's what he did in the second chapter. He did that too. He said, "Who among you is deceiving you?" Because he's he knows that they're not just coming up with this. They're not using the Holy Spirit to come up with this. Somebody has to be coming in. Um, we see that, and again, that's what again that goes all through John. First and second, third book, you know, epistles of John, Jude. It's constantly talking, Second Peter, constantly talking about people coming into the church. You guys aren't aware, but they have bad motives. They're doing bad things, and they are knowingly and purposely doing it. This isn't on accident. These, most of the, 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 the worst errors that, of doctrine are not on accident. The people who did it did it on purpose. You think the prosperity gospel started on accident? Somebody thought saw they could get a new car out of it. And so said, hey, give me $1,000 and God will bless you. That's how it started. Come on. We all know. That was not, nobody was reading the Bible and said, hey, all these disciples had great Lexuses and cars. I think we can too. No. No. Didn't happen. Now, verse 11 says, and this is, my my, this is pretty much my favorite part of the entire, of the entire book. Maybe of the whole Bible. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were cut off, which trouble you. Which is the greatest 
sarcasm in the entire Bible. There's a lot of sarcasm in the Bible that gets thrown in there. And that's one of the greatest because talking about circumcision and what does he say? Well, you know what? I wish those who would, who would trouble you would be cut off. Just a beautiful little turn of phrase for all the adults in the audience. Um, we're going to go really fast back to Romans 9 and just look at the 33rd verse just as a sort of because of the whole concept of how the, he said the offense of the cross. He said, well, if I preached circumcision, you know, why would I still be persecuted? You know, that means that the offense of the cross ceases. So 9.33 says on there how that, as it is written, behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. The cross is a stumbling block to a lie. It is foolishness to the wise, to the Jews, and it is a stumbling block to many. Because it is the simplicity of it all. That of all the things we could ask for, that's why they were go- that's what was going on. People feel right. When you tell people, people become, a- when they know the law, they become acutely aware of their sin. And then when they are sin- aware of their sin, they realize, well, you know what, I need to do something to atone for this. They feel like they owe a debt, whether it's a society or God. And they want to put themselves back under the law because they feel like they need to. But but the cross is so simple. Christ came, God came, and did what we could never do. Fulfill the law perfectly, live perfectly, and, and complete and take the wrath of God from us. We can never do that on our own. It's simple. It's that simple. Nothing you need to do after that. You might want to do things. If you want to do things, that's because you... That's great. Do things all day. It's that simple. Believe on Christ. That's it. There's nothing else to it. The man on the cross, because that's only, there's there denominations that preach, you're not finished being saved until you're baptized. Man on the cross said, remember me in your kingdom. And he said, today you'll be with me. He didn't say, wait, once you get baptized, you'll be with me. Right there on the cross, you'll be with me. Nope. Nothing had to happen. No, it is. And it's, so it's so simple that it's a stumbling block because it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem right. I know, it doesn't seem <laughs> It just doesn't seem right. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's so easy that it just doesn't seem right. So we're going to continue, and I'm going to get a couple more verses to get us through this portion of this so that we can move. So next week we can finish with an easier one. <laughs> Starting in 13, it says, For brethren... Ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Again, he's saying a thing about don't, don't, just because you can sin and get away with it, don't sin and get away with it. Just do what you have to do to love each other. For, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He's saying all the law, everything you have is fulfilled in that one word. And why is that? Because that's the second commandment that Christ gave. Remember, it's asked Christ, what is the greatest commandment? So the greatest is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor and do unto him as you would have him do unto you. The thing is, you can only get to the second one if you've completed the first one. So that's why he says in this occasion, the whole law is summed up in just the second part of that because you can never get to the second part that Christ said unless you fulfill the first part. And that's why we have to continue to strive to be better people, to, to work in the Spirit, to continue to cleanse, cleanse ourselves, to you know, read the Bible, to do things. It's because we need to achieve what Christ and God put out for us. And that is, He gives us something to strive for. It's not a work. It's not something... It's something to strive for. It's a greatness that the Holy Spirit has that we can get to reach out for. We, it's something that's bigger and better than ourselves that we can reach towards. So to, to sum everything up is in that second one because you can't have the second without the first. Now we're going to continue on in just... In 15, and it goes. But if he bite... Uh, says, well, I'll start in 14 just for the heck of it. For all the law is fulfilled in the one word, even this, 
love, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh, flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the thing that, which, that ye would. But if ye be led by the Spirit, ye are not under the law. So, again, if you put yourself under the works, you're not going to be led by the Spirit. You can't. You can't do both. They're contrary. You can't have two in one. So you can only be trusting in one. But, like you said on there, the purpose is that if you want to do that, you, you do it. Do it. Try it. See if it works for you. <laughs> see if it works for you. It's not going to. I promise you. But see if see if it works for you. But he's saying the thing is though is in your in your sinning in your in the fact that you're not going to fulfill the law of Christ of the love of your neighbors yourself was you're going to try to fulfill the commandments and put yourself under the law. Don't bite and devour one another. Do not consume, because then you'll be consumed with the fight, is what he says. And that's, this is one of the things we have. We have tons and tons of churches, tons of people. We have debates where people argue and argue amongst each other, Christians, about what one word or one sentence in the Bible means. And sometimes make yourselves look like fools. There was a, there was a down in Houston, there was a debate. It was a Arminian versus Calvinism debate. These guys were talking over each other, calling each other names, saying the meanest things you could ever imagine to each other, screaming at each other. It was an abomination. I mean, gods, anybody who was not saved, who saw those four men who claimed to be saved on that stage, want, probably want nothing to do with Christianity ever. Because it was terrible. Why? Because they're biting and devouring each other. And once you turn inward on the church and decide you're, you don't like what this person is doing, so you have to say something. You don't like what that person is, so we have to split the church. We don't like this, we don't like that. As soon as you turn inwards, you devour the body and you make yourself a terrible witness to the world. And you become consumed with it. There are entire churches that they get together and they get in and you know, the preacher will get behind the pulpit and he will preach the differences that we believe as a church from the church down the street, or the differences we believe from the Catholics, or the different we believe from the Methodists, or the difference our version of Baptists believe than that version of Baptists. That's what the sermons are. They're not the Bible. They're not what the, the Great Commission. It's just the differences of opinions that they have. Because once you turn inward, everything becomes a mountain. There are things that are important. The gospel is central. If you don't have the gospel, you're not saved. If you don't understand the simplicity of it and you're adding things to it, you're not saved. That's important. Other things aren't. There are all kinds of people who have different views of the end times. There are all kinds of people who have different views of, again, baptism. Do you dunk once? Do you, there's Baptists that dunk three times. They go, psh, psh, psh. There's Baptists who dunk once. Psh. There's Baptists who just go down on your knees. That's just the Baptists. And they split churches over this. Because of dunking somebody in water. It's ridiculous. And we yet we already seen that the, 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 the water has nothing to do with it. It's just something you do to show that you're following what God said. It's a personal thing. An entire church is split over that. So as soon as you turn inwards, you're going to devour and you're going to be caught up. Again, that's where he says that. That's why he says you'll be caught up. You'll be consumed one another, meaning... The only thing you'll be able to think about is how much different you are from the person in the pew next to you. And you won't be able to do what really matters because the whole purpose of the church is to take care of the people around you. The widows, the orphans, the abused, the fatherless, the, children, the people who have no clothing, who need the hungry. That's the purpose of the church. That's why, go, go to Acts and read it. That's why they invented it. That's why they started it. Because the Jews wouldn't take care of the people, so they said, well, we're going to do it. Hey. So that's the whole purpose of the church. And if you're taking so now we have churches that are fighting amongst each other, 
They don't even take a second to look out into the, and do what they're really called to do. Clothing, that, that's the reason why on the end, time, end when they come, they're going to say, God, we prophesied, prophesied. I stood behind the pre- that pulpit and preached for 40 years in your name. I had all kinds of people get saved through my preaching. And God's going to say, go to the left, depart from me, goat, because I never knew you. Your words drew close, but your heart was far from me. You didn't believe. You were so wrapped up in all this stuff that's not important. You could never get past and believe the truth. And you could never, and the reason why we know this is because you never fulfilled the Great Commission. Because what does he say? I never knew you. For when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you never clothed me. When I was poor, you never helped me. And they said, when did we do that? And he goes, when you didn't do it to the least, you didn't do it for me. Because it's a heart thing. Because that's how we can tell that, that, that you're working, is that the Spirit makes you want to do these things. If all you want to do is fight with your people in the pew next to you over some piece of doctrine or some this or that, you got to question and really get back to the gospel. Again, it's nobody's place to say whether somebody is saved or not, but the point is, is you might be putting your effort in the wrong place. That's what Paul's pointing. You're putting your effort in the wrong place. Your effort needs to be outward, not inward. Therefore, if you're going to worry about biting and devouring each other, you're going to be lost. You're going to be consumed by that. That's all that's going to matter in your life, in your church life. Because why? He went back, and we can go right back to it. Every bit of it is summed up in one. It's all summed up in one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. You already love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and spine. But then that gets you to the second, which is, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the entirety of it. And all the stuff that we're going through for four chapters, it all wraps up into that one verse, really. <laughs> that one verse. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so, the point Paul's making is that the Galatian church is heading for, it's bad enough they're getting persecuted by the world, but they're about to split over something that means nothing because they can't stop biting each other in the pews. And therefore, they got to watch out and recenter themselves, refocus. And with that, we will stop because we will finish and do the rest of it next week. But I do want to go just so that we can see something here. We're going to go to 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1. And this is just going to be our closing thing, just to sort of show the totality of Paul's ministry. 1 Timothy 1. Starting the fourth verse, and he says, and again, what I what did I say about why usually people are pushed around and have have terrible doctrine? It's usually because they're listening to somebody tell them a lie, a fable that they want to hear. Got money and cars and whatever else you want to put into that. Four says, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the command is charity, out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having served, swerved, from turn, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor wherefore they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for minstillers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and persecuted and injurer, but I obtained mercy 
because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Jesus Christ. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all exception, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. So Paul's entire ministry was wrapped up in the fact that if you're going to preach the law, you have to do it for the right reason. If you're going to look into the church, you have to do it for the right reason. But the entirety of the law is just to cast a mirror so you can see yourself for who you truly are. But the, entire, but the end of the law is the cross. And that's all we have to worry about is the simplicity of the cross. It's the beginning and it's the end of our entire faith. We'll buy our today and we'll pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and thank you for this time. Thank you for us being able to get into the Bible and just to read it. And hopefully the more we read, the more it'll just open up to us. And there are just so many tough things in there that we just need to continue to, to chew on and continue to put inside of us that we can become more and more aware of your nature and more and more like you every day. Help everyone as we go out, as we continue our week, and as we get ready for Christmas, that we'll stay with our minds in the right place. We'll continue with our hearts free from, from guilt or shame or, or from depression or whatever is going to come in this season. That we'll be able to continue to show your light and shine throughout this holiday season where we get to proclaim to people that it that the birth of our Savior. We ask all these things in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.